Our first scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. For as unfortunate as it is, it seems to be a basic fact of life, an unspoken but absolute law of the universe, that there will be some weeks and some months where it seems like just everything happens all at one time. You know the kind when there are deadlines and due dates coming up. Some silly conflict is creating tension in your family. You're stressed out. Your stress is stressing everybody else out. And you're not sleeping well because you just can't seem to slow down your thoughts. And if you're anything like me, then on the day when you are most stressed out of all, you burn dinner. But I think we can all relate to the fact that some weeks are just unquestionably terrible. And even if they aren't terrible, then some weeks are, at the very least, hectic and overwhelming. Well, this has been one of those weeks for us in the church. I think it's fair to say that the tension and conflict that we've experienced as a denomination has created a lot of anxiety amongst the leaders, not to mention that Lent begins this week, which means planning for Ash Wednesday. And as crazy as it sounds, the process of planning for Ash Wednesday just reminds us that Holy Week is right around the corner. Easter and Holy Week require a lot of time and energy to prepare for. And in the midst of all of that, all of those things, Sunday still comes around every week 
So it can seem hard to actually get ahead on anything. Because of that, it's well known within the ministry world that this is the time of the year when you are most likely to encounter some truly grumpy pastors. Now, I'm not talking about myself, of course. You can just ask Kelsey, obviously. I am always cheerful and pleasant to be around. One of the things that I have to remind myself of, even when things get especially stressful and crazy, is that our Christian calling and responsibilities don't disappear just because we're irritable. The Apostle Paul says it best in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 when he tells them, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as though working for the Lord. He gives nearly the same advice here, though with a particular focus on watching what you say. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. When we talk about life as Christians, we so often talk about what we think or even what we believe. But we can't forget that faith involves both belief and practice, belief and action. I'm not saying that we're saved by our works because we definitely know that's not the case. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But I am saying that we need to consider what our actions and behaviors and, in this case, our words reveal about our commitment to follow Jesus. Because after all, you can't really be said to be following someone when you're just sitting still. Do you remember what Paul says about why we're made? He says in Ephesians that we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And in Galatians that we are set free in Christ to serve one another in love. Our faith is a transformative faith that makes a difference in how we act and how we treat one another. Simply put, as Christians born again, baptized by water and the Spirit, we are changed. And we should reveal that change by devoting ourselves to being good servants for the Lord. Again, the call to live according to certain morals and principles is based not on any obligation, not on any reward that we receive for being good workers, but on the simple fact that we have experienced the powerful, life-changing, and saving grace of Jesus Christ. In our first scripture this morning, the disciples watched in awe as the full glory of Christ was revealed for just a moment as he stood in the presence of the greatest prophets. This is a significant moment, especially as we approach the season of Lent. The greatness of Jesus has been revealed, and we know the bitter end that's coming. But know that this is the same Christ that we encounter. And we, uh, the same glory that has washed us clean. Let us share in the amazement of the disciples in recognizing that God himself took on flesh and walked among us and realized that even though we could never earn salvation, Jesus brought it to us himself. Of all of the marvels of the transfiguration, the shining face or the clothes as white as snow. It's the revelation of this fact that's the most amazing of all. 
Like the disciples, we have encountered Jesus and have been changed by his glory. But a life changed by the glory of God is one marked by strangeness, where we are called to live by different standards. In a confrontational and proud world, these standards can be difficult to uphold. It can be hard to stand your ground when the world expects you to indulge in whatever makes you feel good or to prioritize yourself over everyone else. Remember, Jesus says that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It can be hard to keep the faith when the world tells you that you determine what's right and wrong for yourself. Remember, Jesus says to go and sin no more. It can be hard to stand firm in a world that so strongly encourages us to hate the people who are opposed to us, the people with whom we disagree. But Jesus says that we're to love our neighbors and pray for those who persecute us. Now, obviously, we're in a less harsh culture now than Jesus or the disciples were. Most of them, after all, were executed or at the very least imprisoned for their faith. But though the attacks themselves have changed, there's no denying that the world does not encourage truly faithful living. To stay the course in pursuit of holy living is seen as weird at best, as dangerous at worst, because it makes the inherent claim that some actions are right and some are not. And nobody likes to think that they're doing something wrong. And even when we do hold the moral line, and this is where Paul is speaking most loudly to us, I think, even when we do hold to that moral line, when we're able to resist temptations in our lives, we live in a culture that loves to demonize people who disagree. And there's an expectation that you will do the same. This one's a more subtle danger. Because no one's going to say, I want you to hate me for disagreeing with you. But to respond to the meanness of other people with kindness is so uncommon, it's so unusual, that it can be deeply embarrassing to do so. But Paul tells us, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Pursuing holiness in action and attitude, in our deeds and our words, is so hard. But remember what Paul says here. You don't need to be ashamed of your service or of clinging to God's truth because, this, because the one for whom you work has approved you. And knowing that, along with the magnitude of God's grace, the power of of Christ's work, you can find strength as you serve in all parts of your life, including what you say. The same God who spoke the world into being, who made you by hand and gave you life, who works within you and is making you perfect, even now, has given you his blessing and his approval. What else matters when we have something so great? So we're called to be good servants of God who've been changed by Jesus Christ. And that impacts all aspects of our lives, but Paul focuses specifically on how we conduct ourselves as we speak. 
Speech is our most basic means of communication. It's how we relate to one another and share ideas and information. And it's obviously central and critical to our call to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But what Paul is saying here goes beyond just telling people that Jesus died so that they could live. He's saying that we have a responsibility to reveal God through our speech, through both what we say and how we say it. Let's get a little bit deeper into this passage because there's some real wisdom, I think, to the advice that Paul is giving about ensuring that our words and our conversations are holy. First, he says that quarreling about words is worthless and harmful to people who overhear. Now, bear in mind, Paul, of all people, was certainly what you might call a quarreler. He loved to quarrel. So we can be sure, we can be confident that Paul did not mean that we should never disagree or argue because he proved that some things are certainly worth arguing about. Imagine if he hadn't argued against those who wanted Christians to keep kosher. Or imagine if the church hadn't confronted heresies through the centuries, codifying things like the divinity and humanity of Jesus or the nature of the Trinity. Our church, I think, would be incredibly different. We might not even be able to recognize it at all. We also have worthwhile arguments in the modern church, all of which are built around the question of how to best live faithfully. But Paul is also right that arguing about things that don't really matter can just drive people away and create deep divisions. So how can we know what's worth arguing about and what isn't? Well, in order to discern that from one moment to the next, we have to have a strong understanding of the fundamentals of our faith. For that, you can look at the creeds of the church, at the history of the church overall, and at the great thinkers of the church. We have a gift in the fact that there have been so many faithful and devoted Christians who have gone before us and left us their thoughts, because it means that we don't have to start from scratch as we do this work, we can stand on their shoulders as we begin. So I would say that anything fundamental, whether the divinity of Christ or the authority of Scripture or any other basic thing, is worth arguing over. What isn't worth arguing over are the incidentals. Now this can be really hard for us because we do love the church, both overall and our local church. And we want to do the absolute best things for both. The stereotypical example of a worthless church argument is over the color of the carpet or pew upholstery in the sanctuary, but I would encourage you to take even that with some grace. People want the interior of their church to look pristine because they care about it. They want it to look as best as it can. So let's not make the mistake of assuming the worst in people, especially in our brothers and sisters in the Lord, because they often, perhaps even usually, have good intentions. But at the end of the day, with that said, carpet or pew colors don't bring people to Christ. But I'll tell you what, seeing Christians get into vicious arguments about them certainly can push people away. 
Hearing Christians gossip can do the same, as can watching people who claim to cre- uh, cling to grace fall into spite and meanness. The opposite is true as well, though. To see Christians enter into disagreements with a spirit of grace, recognizing God's love for the other, even while believing they're wrong, can reveal the power of Jesus Christ. The world wants us to hate one another. Being freed from sin means being freed from hatred, even in the most critical of arguments. The second and third things Paul tells us about speech are a little bit different from this one because they have to do not with how we speak with one another, but with what and how we teach one another, and particularly how the beliefs and conduct of a teacher can cause serious damage. Paul says, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Speaking about people who claim knowledge or authority that they don't actually have. You know, I knew a person once who was studying to become a pastor, not in the Methodist church, but uh, still. This is a person who, though we disagreed on several things, was generally pretty good at the tasks of ministry. But there came a time when they began talking about Christ in a way that was somewhat removed from the person of Jesus, which was a fringe idea to say the least. But it wasn't the craziest thing I'd heard, though, so it honestly went mostly unnoticed amongst all the other unorthodox ideas that you hear in seminaries. But over the next few months, they began to use this language more and more until finally they were convinced They had convinced themselves fully that the Christ, quote-unquote, was a force that just temporarily inhabited or overlapped with Jesus, but that Jesus was not Christ. That's not just fringe. That is fully-fledged heresy. It's easy as you move away from the fundamentals of faith to build momentum that carries you even farther. And Paul does not fail to recognize the effects that something like this can have on a church. Their teachings, he says, will spread like gangrene. The person I mentioned before was a youth director at the time. And I've seen not just then, but many times, what can happen when careless teaching enters a church. The truth is, with leadership comes a responsibility to uphold the highest standards. Because your beliefs and your actions impact the people who look to you for guidance and example. Remember that, because it's not just pastors or youth directors or Sunday school teachers who are leaders. Every single one of you, every Christian, has been tasked by Jesus Christ to proclaim his gospel and lead the lost back to him. We all have to be careful what we say and believe and how we conduct ourselves because we are all trying to help a fallen world see that salvation and love and grace is available. So here's what it really boils down to. We've seen and experienced the glory of Jesus Christ and we must hold him as the foundation in all that we do, including our speech as people who've been shown grace and mercy. Every moment of our lives 
should be marked by our confession that Jesus is Lord, which is the oldest confession of faith that we have. We make that confession with our words as we tell the people around us what we know and what we've experienced. When we understand that the love of God is so powerful that we want to invite our friends to come experience it with us, and when we choose to extend grace to people who only want to stir hatred, we make that confession when we stand firm and cling to our values, maintaining the pursuit of righteousness even as the world tries to draw us away. And we make that confession again and again every time we bow before our God and devote ourselves anew to following Him. We are a transformed people living by different standards and pursuing different goals. For us, everything is built on the hope that we have in Jesus, and everything is done in pursuit of Him. We've been changed And we should want to share that joyfully so that others can experience the same change as well. We've been changed so we're no longer slaves to the sin of spite or gossip or cruelty. We've been changed so our conversations and even our arguments should be changed as well. And finally, everything that we do, everything that we say, should be done with a purpose of bringing glory to God. Does it glorify the Lord when we get into petty arguments or hold grudges? When we degrade one another for the sake of winning a fight? No, not at all. And it, in fact, only draws us away from Christ. Rather, we reveal His greatness when we follow His commandments. Loving God and pursuing holiness in every moment, and loving our neighbors enough to proclaim the good news of Christ. Amen.